Today we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, you want me to pray? Do you want to pray? I don't know. All very confused. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad. That is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is going to require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this. If it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Do I pray for coffee? No. Are you a psychopath? No one wants to be next to the person at Starbucks that's praying over a latte. You weirdo. Soup. Do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that is always off the book. I like to say, if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's gonna require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system that people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Ask any Bible-believing Christian, they're gonna have a different policy on fries. Some say, never eat the fries. Some say, eat as many as you want. Here's the policy on fries, up to three, Fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. That brings us to dessert. Always a very confusing situation. A lot of times people go out to a show, go to a movie. Hey, should we grab some dessert afterward? Yeah, let me get the creme brulee. I love cheese. Hey, you don't need to pray for that because you've already prayed for your meal earlier in the night. Do you hold hands before you pray? That depends on your situation. If it's a personal family gathering, some close-knit Bible study of some sort, sure, a hold hand would be uncomfortable. Now, if you're on a Tinder date, that might throw off the mood. Most of the confusion surrounding pre-meal prayer comes from when to actually pray. Let me just say, on behalf of waiters all over the world, please pray when your waiter is not there. There's nothing worse than a waiter coming out with two full arms of fajitas, and you're over there mid-prayer at Jabez. Like, what are you doing? Last but certainly not least, who at the table volunteers to lead the prayer? Lots of people say, the man should lead the prayer. Why is that? I'm not sure. It's 2018. Maybe we should get that rule adjusted at some point in the near future. A lot of people operate under the most spiritual person at the table. They're going to be the one that should pray because that prayer is going to be the most powerful and effective. So you've got obviously a pastor, a missionary, even a Christian blogger, and so on. Should even a volunteer youth pastor, that prayer is going to be a little less effective, but it's still going to qualify. <laughs> sitting at the table with obviously more spiritual people around you, you're kind of off the book because I feel like God would be like, hey, how come you always bless this meal? You'd be like, I don't know. Ask the pastor. He works for you. <laughs> there are a lot of spoken and unspoken rules about what to do when a family gathers for a meal. Our family, the Sheridan family, has basically two rules when we gather to eat about this prayer issue. Number one, we always hold hands. Now, you don't have to hold our hands, but it is fun to go out to eat with people and we hold hands and everybody feels compelled to hold hands. The pastor's holding hands, so we have to hold hands. I always try to find and sit next to the oldest man in that scenario because, because I'm the pastor, he's going to have to hold my hand, and it is, it is the greatest thing in the world to hold a 70-year-old man's hand who doesn't want to hold your hand. But, so we always hold hands. Rule number two that we have, and this is a very good one, feel free to take it and run with it. It did come from uh, Mount High. God gave me this. So rule number two about prayer is this. We don't pray for anything unless it had a parent. You understand what I'm saying? Unless it was meat. If it's meat, you pray for it. Salad, you don't pray for salad. In fact, stop eating that. That's a weed. All right? That's what I spray Roundup on. You don't need to be eating salad at all and stuff. That is a horrible thing. Those of you in here, those, your, your mom makes you eat peas. The reason she does that is because she doesn't like you. 
and specifically the reason why. You don't need peas. Nobody ever got anywhere because they need peas in fact. In fact, 95% uh, of everybody who died in the Civil War ate carrots. That's a known fact. So don't eat carrots because you'll die. Anyways, but those are some of the little rules we have as a family. And anytime a family gathers, there's always these little uh, rules and stuff. And as we start today, we're going to talk about family gathering and the Lord's Supper today. If you're taking notes, we're going to start with this first thought, and it's this. Families gather for important events. Families gather for important events. They gather for joyful events, like weddings and stuff like that. They gather for babies being born. We had a couple of grandparents, or new grandparents uh, this week in our church, two babies being born and stuff. They gather for those things. Uh, they gather for miraculous events, like your son or daughter. You didn't think they were going to graduate, right? And you were like looking at the credits and you were thinking about, well, maybe I'll sacrifice an animal for this because you're trying to get God involved. But anyways, they graduate and that's like, they passed, hallelujah. Uh, Kenny, Kenny passed his graduation in the Navy, okay? That's a great thing. And you guys went, and that's a gathering. You gather for miraculous events. You also gather for sad events, right? You gather for funerals. Why do we do this in Baptists are thinking the worst? Why? Because somebody loves somebody and that person died. Why do we instantaneously bring them food? I never really figured that out. I don't know how chocolate cake makes the loss of your grandmother better, but that's what we do, right? But we gather during sad events. Matthew chapter 26 is an important event that takes place. And it's what we like to call either communion, or I like to more accurately call the Lord's Supper. Why is this event that we're going to look at Matthew 26? This specific event, why is this so important? We'll throw this up here. This is important if you're taking notes. This is the last Passover. Now, other people have celebrated, but if I'm going to be accurate, this is the last technical, this is the last real Passover that takes place. And it's also the first Lord's Supper. Uh, if, if you know your Bible, you go back into Exodus, remember Moses and the Passovers, when they would take that lamb and they took the lamb and they put the blood over the door and the death angel passed over. And, and so the Israelites and the Hebrews and stuff, they would do this Passover feast. And that Passover feast was all nothing. Was, all it was was a, a looking forward to what Jesus would do on the cross. That it was a male, spotless lamb. It, rep it totally represents Jesus. It's so easy. In fact, when Jesus got baptized, right, John baptized him, what does John say? Behold the Lamb of God. But the Lord's Supper, what we're going to do is about us looking back to what Jesus did for us. You see, they looked forward not fully understanding what the cross would be like, what was going to take place, but we know exactly what happened. We have detailed accounts. We have our Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have that in at least the same way. And we have all that. So the Lord's Supper is us looking back. But the one we're about to see today in Matthew chapter 26 this is the very last one. Little odd note. I don't know if you like odd things, but I found this fascinating. Um, the people who first read uh, Matthew's account here, Matthew's writing to Jewish believers, and uh, he wrote it about 30 years after the events here. So the people reading this for the very first time had never celebrated for 30 years, or some of them were born, they had never celebrated for 30 years the Passover. In fact, as he's going through it, there probably were kids that were like raised in church. Some of you, right? You're second generation Christian. You've been raised in church. There's probably kids that were raised, and they were like, when they read it in Matthew's Gospel, they're like, what exactly is the Passover? We've never done it. Just an interesting note. I found it interesting. Apparently, you did not. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you some three things about Lord's Supper basics today. Lord's Supper basics. Number one, if you're taking notes, the gathering is for believers. This is only for people who put their faith and trust in Jesus. That's the requirement. Uh, what we know, what happened, Judas has left the group. What we're about to read, Judas took off and he has left. In fact, if you like the cross-reference, John 13, 27 and 29 is a good cross-reference. In verse 27 of John 13, Jesus will say unto him, Thou, what thou doest, do quickly. And in verse 29, it shows us that the disciples thought Jesus was going to like uh, buy something for the feast or maybe make an offering for the poor because he had the, the money and he was the treasurer. But today, when we take part of these elements, if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, I would like to encourage you to just let him go. That, that doesn't mean we don't like you. Well. No, no. We have a whole list of people we don't like. It's not you. But anyway, um, that doesn't mean we don't like you or you're not important. But this is for believers only. Now, I, I, I'm going to tell you this right now. I want to scare you. This is what I'm going to do. This is, I'm just being honest. I want to scare you because I want to show you a verse. This should, this should scare you. If you're a young person or even an old person or a middle mom and you've been playing a game 
right? Everybody thinks you're saved, but you're not. This verse in Romans, throw this up here, Romans 8, 19 says this, For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Now that tells me a couple things. First of all, it tells me uh, that not everybody's a child of God. That's a lie. You hear somebody, young people, somebody in school, you go to college, and some like uh, English professor says some things like, we're all God's children. I mean, that, that's nice. It's a nice bumper sticker. You don't want to raise your hand and say, no, you're going to hell. No, don't do that. You don't want to do that. But uh, we are not all God's children. You're only part of the family of God once you accept Christ as your personal Savior. That's why Jesus said you had to be born again in John chapter 3. If, you, if you're part of God's family, you've been born again. Say amen. amen. But you know what that also tells me? That people can hide. People can hide in church. Oh, Pastor, I, I can't imagine anyone coming to a church like this and hearing such wonderful messages and having such a great pastor. <laughs> Why do people laugh when I said but and having said, they, that? That could possibly happen. Well, Jesus will say at another time, at the, at the end time, that all these people will be there. They'll be like, God, we, we preached, we taught, uh, we even cast out demons. And Jesus will look at them and say, uh, depart from me, I, I never knew you, and prepare and send them to hell, basically. But look at Judas. Judas saw Jesus, shook his hand. Judas knew what his beard looked like. He knew what his eyes looked like. By the way, they're not blue. But Jesus, he knew what his eyes looked like and what Jesus smelled like. He knew everything about it. He saw miracles. He heard his teaching. And Judas wasn't a believer. The events that we're about to do after our service is only for people who put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Join the family today. Number two. Did I get that right? I did too. Okay. Every now and then I'll be. Number three. Number two. The elements are symbolic. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 6, this confused some people. Because he'll say, unless you take my body and take my blood, you're not going to heaven. You're not part of me. You're not going to be part of the kingdom and stuff. And some of the people were like, whoa, whoa, he's talking cannibalism. And they, they left and said, oh, no, I, I can't listen to this. The problem that they had is they, they weren't listening with spiritual ears or, or spiritual discernment. Uh, what we're about to do is just a symbol. It's a symbol. And symbols are important in the Bible. One of the important symbols is the cup. The cup was very important. Uh, Dr. James Werner McGee says this about what would happen. This is his take. In the Passover, they didn't sit in chairs. Remember that picture you've seen? That wasn't a self-portrait, right? They didn't, Jesus yeah. was there. That was, no, that was just a painting someone did thousands of years later. What they would do is they'd sit on uh, big uh, pillows and stuff, and they'd put their feet away from the tables because they wore sandals and open toes, and nobody wants to eat and see somebody else's feet, right? That's a, that should be a rule, too. When you see your feet, you can't eat. But anyway, um, but what they would do at the Passover, they would take the cup as they did it. One cup, a little gross. Aren't you glad we're, we do these, right? I, I don't know if any of you are ever Catholic or been to a Catholic church and everybody lines up and then you have to take that one cup. I went to a Catholic church once and they, I didn't drink it, but I looked down in that cup and there's all these floaty things and stuff. I'm like, ooh, thank you, Jesus. I'm a Baptist. But anyway, um, yeah, there you go, brother. Uh, I don't like eating anything after anybody but my wife. But anyways, uh, so what they would do, how did I get on this? This is why my messages take so long. Um, they, they would, at this, the pastor, they passed the cup around the group seven times. And Dr. McGee says that around the seventh time, that's when Jesus kind of held it and then began to do what we're going to read and instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. And it's an interesting thing, too, is we'll see that tradition, this isn't Bible, it's just a tradition. Tradition says they're going to sing a hymn. The Bible says they sing a hymn, but the tradition is that they sing Psalms 112 through 118. Do you want to write that down? Psalms 112 through 118. And in that passage, there's a phrase. And I, and I just, as a little kid, and he wondered what, if, as they were singing this, if Jesus teared up, if he pondered the thought. And there's a phrase in Psalms 116.13, and it says this, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And I just wonder if Jesus thought of that as he was taking that cup. That, that's just my thought. Uh, there, a cup is also mentioned again, you know, if you know your Bible, later on in the garden, in, in Luke chapter 22.42, Luke 22.42. Uh, Jesus will be there in the garden. He will pray, uh, Lord, take this cup from me. Getting lost on that, but a lot of people speculate what it is. My personal opinion, so it's right. My opinion is that, um, that Jesus, it was the divinity of Jesus because he was fully God, was pushing back from the concept of being made sin. Uh, that's just my opinion of what that phrase actually means. But you see Jesus says that 
take this cup. He uses that uh, illustration again. Listen, the elements that we're going to do here are symbolic. It won't become Jesus' body. It won't become, they're just symbolic. But the new life that you can have when you accept what Jesus did on the cross is real. Number, I did it. Number three. I went to public school. Number three. <laughs> this creates humble remembrance. It creates humble remembrance. The Lord's Supper is not magic. Right? Uh, you will not be physically healed today. But honestly, that's not the point of the Lord's Supper. The point of the Lord's Supper is to remind us of his sacrifice and our unworthiness. As you know, I'm like a King James preacher, a King James guy. The Apostle Paul will write in Romans 7.24, I love the King James, how he says it. He says it the best in Romans 7.24. The Apostle Paul, in, in seeing the glory and holiness of God and then seeing his own sin reflected, said this. Listen to what Paul said about himself. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Death meaning the second death meaning death. Paul, when he saw God and his holiness and saw how perfect he was and then realized how fallen and sinful and, and, and depraved he was as a human being, he said, oh, wretched man that I am. Let me just say this to you. If you go to a church and they don't tell you you're wretched at least every now and then, that you are a fallen sinner, that you are totally depraved, separated from God, who can do nothing to save yourself, and that's why Jesus died for you. If you go to a church or a Sunday school or a small group that doesn't eventually get to that point, you need to go to another church. Because you are very nice-looking people. You, Some of you dress up. Some of you don't. Thank you, Jim. Uh, but you know, some of you look really nice and you dress up really well. But I don't care who you are, how much money you have, or what you're wearing, what car you have in the parking lot. You need to understand this. You are a wretched person separated from God because of your sin. But that is why God loved you so much and Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross. And the response to that should not be, oh, that's nice. The response to that should be overwhelming humility. It's so easy to miss. We call so many of our worship experiences in church today, we call them celebrations. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. This is our celebration service. There's nothing wrong with celebrating that, right? Amen? But I don't want you to celebrate today. I don't want you walking out feeling good about yourself. I don't want you walking out thinking, yay, if you cheer, if you leave today, I did something wrong. What I want you to do is walk out realizing the depth of your sin and how wretched you were and the pain and the sacrifice that Jesus made. And I want you to walk out of this building humble. Why is that important? <coughs> Throw this up there. Humility <coughs> causes us to see with clarity. This is the only reason why I became a pastor because I didn't drink water and everybody else awake. Humility causes us to see with clarity. What I mean by this, there's a lot of fog of my own personal desires, my own ego, my own pride, and it gets in the way of making a decision. It gets in the way of seeing what is important, what I get out of it. But when humility comes, all of that type of fog and indecision and not sure what to do and what to what's the right decision and how should I handle this and should I tell that person off or should I not, what should I do? All of this is just broken away and the fog is lifted and we see clearly. Look, I have never seen a humble person get in a fight with another church member. Humble people don't fight. Some of you are thinking, but I had a good fight. No, humble people don't because what you do is you realize who you are and what God did, and instead of seeing somebody who's aggravating you, you see your brother in Christ. You see your sister. Humble people don't fight. I've never seen a humble person hold on to their private sin. I'll use the water bottle. I'll use my Bible. You came in here today, and you've got a private sin, meaning it hasn't been made public. You're Young people, your, your mom and dad might not know about it, what's under your bed. They might not know what you did last night. Sir, your wife doesn't know what you did on your business trip. You don't, they don't know what's on your computer, what's in your briefcase, whatever. Nobody knows this. This is my little private sin, and I care it up. Listen, humble people do not carry private sin. Humble people see what Jesus did, 
how wretched they are, and they look at it in their sin and say, there's no way this is worth it. There's no way I can be in that relationship, take that drug, be around that person. There's no way I can do this. i got to stop lying to my husband. There's no way I can do this. I have got to drop this and leave it there because that's how great God is and that's how amazing grace is. I don't want anything to do with it. If you walk out of here today and you're still holding on to some private sin, you're nurturing it and taking care of it. Nobody knows I've got it. The cure, the cure is humility. So, with that in mind, and by the way, just Jesus has never turned away a humble person. So with all that in mind, let's just read the events that take place in what we call the first blood supper. Look at verse 25 of Matthew 26. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he, Jesus, said unto him, Thou hast said. And at that point, Judas leaves. Verse 26, When they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed of many of the remission of sins. Um, in the Old Testament, anytime there was a covenant, uh, they, they kind of signified or sealed that covenant by blood. Uh, that's kind of what we do with the wedding ring. That would be really cool if that was our practice, that like at every wedding and stuff, the bride comes down and we're right here at the altar. And now to signify that covenant, we will slaughter a sheep. Wouldn't that be cool? And we just, your white dress and there's blood spraying on everything. And I'd be like, that, that, that would be a wedding I'd want to go to. That would be fun. But anyway. In the Old Testament, wouldn't that be cool if you, all right, then you ate that lamb and that would be really cool. But anyway, um, in the Old Testament, anytime they signified a covenant or an agreement between two people, they would sort of seal it with blood. The more important type of covenant would be the more uh, costly of an animal or more animals that they would use and stuff. Here we have the New Covenant, the New Testament. And what is sealing this covenant is the blood from the Lamb of God. I know in Matthew 1.1, there's a page in your Bible that says the New Testament. If you wanted to be accurate, don't do this. I want you to think, but if you want to be accurate, you should take a razor and just slightly cut out that page. Because the New Testament doesn't start in Matthew 1.1. The New Testament will start when Jesus spills his blood. In verse 29. But I say unto you, I will not drink uh, hence of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. A little eschatology, okay? That's a theological word. I know some of you, that's not your thing, but so stay with me for a second. A little eschatology and theology that takes place here. Throw this up here. This is a fascinating thing. The, during the millennium, see, so what's the millennium? Uh, after the rapture, comes the tribulation. After the tribulation, Jesus returns, the second coming of Christ. And after the second coming, starts the millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, it's an interesting note here. The Passover will be reinstituted during the millennium. Because Jesus clearly says here, we will do this, I will do this during the millennium. Now, a lot of people are like, well, why? And some people have written books about this and asked questions. I'll just say something. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know what it's fully going to symbolize. I don't know what it's going to look like. And anybody who tries to sell you their book for $9.99, they don't really know either. But all I know is this. I don't know how or why it's going to look. I know this. I'm going to be there. Amen. I don't know how Jesus is going to come from the church if it happens before I die. I don't know how it's all going to look. There's all, you know, speculation and chaos and how will we all hear the same sound and stuff? Will it be different down south? Will the trump of God be more of a slow draw? And, you know, will it be more like, hey, y'all, come on up, you know, talk like that, will talk like that and, and stuff. And, you know, New York City taxi cab whistles, you know. I don't know how that's, I, I don't, you know what? This might sound like heresy. I don't really care. What I do know and what I do care about is I'm going to be there. So I hope you know Christ because there's coming a time. Listen, a little lesson about the millennium from this. Two things. The millennium is a real place. Jesus believed it was real. Jesus didn't believe it was symbolic. Be very careful because this is in lies a lot of heresies and heretics that will say, you know, that millennium isn't a real thing. We're in the millennium now. The millennium God is spiritual and everything. Jesus didn't seem to indicate that it was spiritual. He seemed to say that he was going to take a real cup and have a real drink. 
be careful of these groups, and they are heretics, most of them, that are saying that like we can bring the millennium to us, and that if the church takes over the government, if the church takes over this institution, and if the church had enough education and built enough hospitals and did enough social justice, we can bring about the millennium. That is completely false. The millennium is not today. There's a real time in a real place, a thousand-year reign of Christ. Satan is bound to a pit, and it's going to be an amazing time. I hope you're there. Number two about the millennium. The millennium is a future event. Obviously, as you listen to Jesus' words, he's not talking about something that's going to happen tomorrow, is it? He's talking about something that's going to take place. He's saying, well, the millennium is now. Well, then would you please show me Jesus celebrating the Passover? Well, that's just all spiritual, Pastor. That's just, be very careful with the people that spiritualize so much of the Bible. You'll find that people that spiritualize the last 19 chapters of the Bible also spiritualize the first 11 chapters of the Bible. He said, Pastor, are you one of those crazy people that believe the Bible is literal and, and, and without mistakes? And you believe in a guy named Noah and everything? Yes, I do. Jesus did, so that's good enough for me. I can show you historical things about Noah and flood. That's fine. But you know why I believe it? Jesus did. That's why I do it. So that, that, that's, that's kind of deflating. It's simple, though, isn't it? Look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, again, tradition says Psalm 112 through 118. That's just tradition, though. They might have sang, you know, Amazing Grace. Maybe they sang the Chris Tomlin one. You know, that real fun, hit kind of version or something. Maybe they sang, maybe they sang something that sounded more like Tyler, Tyler, Taylor Swift or something. I don't remember. I know, I doubt it. Wouldn't that be disappointing if you got to heaven and all the music in heaven sounded like Taylor Swift? I mean, it's better than Eric Clapton. That was a shot. He knows what he's talking about. Anyway. I don't know why you all wooed. You don't know. I just... You have no idea what that's between me and him. You're like, oh, preacher's going down. You know? It's like we got a fight now or something. After school, Seth. You know, what's wrong with you people, man? It's just a joke. Take it easy. We all know when we get to heaven, the song is going to be like Merle Haggard. Mama Trap. Anyways, all right, verse 30. They went out into the Mount of Olives. Interesting note, isn't it? Mount of Olives, where they went to, that is where Jesus is going to actually step foot on the second coming. That is awesome how it all ties together. But when a family gathers, I give you two things to kind of build on everything we just did. When a family gathers, number one, it creates peaceful unity. Peaceful unity. The Lord's Supper is our opportunity to remember why we meet. The Lord's Supper is our opportunity to remember what it is we rally around and why we are here. We are here because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, what is the gospel? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Everything about us in this church, everything we do is centered on the cross. We didn't put up the, the curtain right because I just wanted that up there so you could see it today. Everything we do is telling people about Jesus and eventually in Jesus' life telling them about the cross of Jesus Christ. You know what happened if we focus on that? It's an amazing thing. When, when we remember a sacrifice, it brings unity. Don't believe me? Memorial Day. It's like one of the rare times America can, can unite. In fact, this pains me to praise the state of Georgia. Because I'm not too sure about people who come from Georgia. Um, I don't know. Anyways, this took place and kind of went viral and everything. This photo here was at Atlanta Braves game uh, on Memorial Day. And they have a really cool thing. I don't know. Matt, is this chair here all the time or just on Memorial Day? Oh, this is new to him. This is new to him. Okay. Uh, they have a thing that's got a plaque there, and no one's allowed to sit in that chair. And it's dedicated to the MIA and the, the veterans and the, the, the missing in action. And it's a memorial, basically. They have it. And I, and I guess on Memorial Day, they have this ROT student, and he stands there at attention, you know, like you've been to Washington at the Unknown Soldier, and he's supposed to just stand there like a hurricane or anything, and he stands there. Well, on Memorial Day, it started to rain, and this other gentleman came over and seeing that he was standing in the rain, just took his umbrella while he's standing there and just held it for him. Isn't that cool? You see, what rallied that man and what rallied them together was the sacrifice of our soldiers. 
See, when you see that picture, you don't see a, a, a black man and a, a white man. You don't see that. Or if that soldier was a woman, you wouldn't see that. Or if the man was a woman, you wouldn't see race. You wouldn't see gender. You would just see Americans. I, I prayed at the uh, Memorial Day parade, and at the end, I got to pray again. They asked me to come back. I guess the prayer I did last year didn't keep, so I had to do it again. But I got to pray again, and it was really cool. Brooks Patterson was there. He was in a wheelchair, and he was grumpy. And, but he was there and stuff, and um, shook his hand and thanked him. He was a veteran for his service and stuff. And as I prayed, you know, I looked out, and, you know, I didn't see men and women, children, young or old. I didn't see black, white, Asian, Hispanic. I didn't see any. I just saw... Americans. Isn't that amazing? That sacrifice can do something that no politician, no politician could get all these age and races and different socioeconomic, economic, I think no politician could rally Americans around like that, could get people to come under one simple cause. What made them do that was the sacrifice of our soldiers. You see what I'm saying here? At the foot of the cross, God doesn't see men and women. He doesn't see black and white. He doesn't see Hispanics and Irish. He doesn't see Jew or Gentile. I mean, Galatians clearly says this. At the foot of the cross, all God sees is sinners who need to be forgiven. And once they're saved, all he sees is his own children. Amen. What rallies us, what brings us together and creates unity, is the cross of Jesus Christ. I spent... Good guy, I'm not trying to bad him at all, so please don't misunderstand him. I spent about two hours talking to a, a, a young man who in my student ministry is pastoring a church, and uh, it's not going well. Just deteriorated, it's just gotten the, the word lawyer has been mentioned, and it's just, it's just not gone well at all. It's not what church is supposed to be like, and he was just heartbroken and stuff. Can I tell you what's the problem with that church? It's not the pastor, it's not the, the problem with that church is. Their focus is not the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when the cross of Jesus Christ becomes their focus, you don't care what color the carpet is or what, what color they painted the walls or what happens or who put out the flowers or who got to sing a solo or who got this part or who gets to teach a class. Or, when the cross of Jesus Christ is the focus, all you care about is honoring and serving him. Today, what I want you to do, I want you like Memorial Day, I want you to walk out and I want you to remember the sacrifice and I want you to be humble. You never walk away, and you shouldn't, young people, you shouldn't. In a Memorial Day service, and there's a, you should stand. If you're in, in service, you're supposed to maybe salute. There's a couple rules, but you should stand. And when a Memorial Day has happened, you know, you're supposed to walk away quietly. Out of respect, reverence, and humility, what was done for you. Today, when you walk out of the doors, I, I, you go out to eat, family's coming over, you've got to get your house clean, whatever's going to happen. Today, when you walk out the door, I just want you to walk out humbly, just realizing what Jesus did for you, what the cross was all about. And number two, when a family gathers, we imitate Jesus. We imitate Jesus. There's something about, I love this phrase, maybe you've never heard it, people about the words in red. And what that means, it's, it's, it's people or Christians who are focused on the words in red. And if you know anything, you know, been in church long enough in your Bible, you know that the words in red are the words Jesus spoke. And it's a phrase that basically means you are people that are focused on what Jesus taught, how Jesus lived, and how Jesus acted. You know, the what would Jesus do and everything. It's about Jesus. Uh, we're, we're building that cafe area, and sometime this millennial will get done. And uh, it's being painted and everything. But what's going to be on that wall, that this is going to be on that wall in some form, in some fashion, is the purpose of statement of Oakland Woods Baptist Church. If you're taking notes, this is the purpose of Oakland Woods. Oakland Woods Baptist Church is about Jesus. If I have to give you one sentence that describes Oakland Woods, if I have to give you one word, if I have to give you one thought about it, it's Oakland Woods Baptist Church is about Jesus. We want to study the Word of God, not for the sake of studying the Word of God. We want to study the Word of God because all of this reveals Jesus, and we want to find out more about Jesus. Every message here should have something to take you to the cross and reveal Jesus. Every Sunday school teacher, that should be the overwhelming theme of every lesson you teach. It should be Jesus. Every small group leader, every time of devotion, anything you're doing, the overwhelming thing is to bring people to Jesus. 
and to study the Word of God about Jesus. And secondly, it's about reaching the next generation for Jesus. I mean, I like Pastor Ken. He's a nice guy. But that's why we have him. That's why we watch the mills who come in the building. <laughs> Last night, we had a great time in our Elevate service. That was wonderful. Seth did a great job preaching. He comes out of Southeastern uh, Seminary. I don't know much about that school, but everybody's like you. Let's find another one. That was great. We had a great time. And what's the whole point of that? Is to teach and to reach the next generation of Jesus. You see, when that comes in, when that type of clarity comes in, that, that changes budgets. Our budget should be about, well, no, our budget should be about Jesus, studying Jesus, and reaching Jesus. But well, no, we should build this, you know, because the seniors pay the bills, Pastor. So we should do this and make them more comfortable. No, 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 no. Our budget needs to reflect that we are about Jesus, studying the word of God that reveals Jesus, and reaching the next generation for Jesus. Amen. That's why I work, I've told this to 930, and I'll tell this to you. We are going to help Seth in some way about planning this church. We're going to have a little business meeting right here. Okay, all those in favor of helping Seth and Taylor start a church and being involved in it, say amen. amen. All those opposed, go out in the rain. We're going to help them on some type of level, right, Pastor Ken? We've been talking about this, and he's got the same heart and the same vision I do about helping people and helping churches get planted. You say, why? Because we want to plant churches that tell other people about Jesus. And then teach and reveal the word of God so that people can learn more about Jesus. Who will reach the next generation, not for social justice or some political cause or to make them better Americans. To reach the next generation for Jesus. Jesus. Sound like a cult there, don't we? Open the back to search is about Jesus. Leave today deciding to imitate Jesus. Now, I had my, my surgery uh, and everything, and I'm doing much better. It's, it's nice to preach without drugs. It's, it's interesting. Some of you lived different last year, week when I was up here. And somebody told me before, you should preach high more often. And I, sure. Funny. But anyways, um, uh, and so I've had the surgery and stuff, and I had a bandage and stuff. And I would have been in a lot of pain. And I didn't take some of the medicine. I didn't like what it did and stuff. And so I've been holding my side a lot and kind of bent over. And a couple times when it was really hurt, I'm kind of doing that old man walk. And I look like I'm 80 years old and I've been shuffling like this. And then uh, one time at our house, one of my girls, Kylie, uh, and she's only three. She doesn't talk a lot, but she said this very clearly. She saw me kind of do it and she goes like this. I'm daddy. <laughs> so I grounded her. But no. She's three. What do you do? You trip her. No. Um, she's like, hey, that's what I want you to do. I want you to walk out. I want to walk like Jesus. Don't walk like Pastor Steve. You're not supposed to be imitating me, right? You don't imitate Pastor Ken. You don't, please, please don't imitate Jim Merrill. We already have one. We don't do that. We don't imitate a deacon or a teacher. We don't do that. What I want you to, I want you to walk like Jesus walks. I want you to talk like Jesus talks. Young people, you got a decision, sir. You own a business. I want you to ask yourself, what is the way Jesus would make this decision? You got a chance to maybe separate from your spouse. I want you to ask yourself, what would Jesus want me to do here? I want to love people like Jesus. I want to forgive my sister-in-law like Jesus would forgive her. I want to tell people the good news like Jesus would do it. Leave here today, not imitating Pastor Steve, not being your best Baptist. Leave here today imitating Jesus. So why? Because you're going to walk away humble. But God would love you so much that he would send his only begotten son to die on a cruel, cruel Roman cross. That then while you were yet sinners, Jesus died for you. This week, I had, I had a struggle of a week. Um, but I had an experience that kind of reminded me of this family gathering. My pastor, my mentor, uh, Pastor Gregory, passed away. Uh, he was 88 years old. He had a good sense of humor. Someone asked me, "Where did he die from?" Because he was eighty-eight. He died from eighty-eight. <laughs> but he—I forget exactly what it was, but it didn't matter. Preached the gospel for like sixty years. He is a 
can be as our pastor should be to at least like the greatest pastors ever and stuff like that. You would be lucky to have a pastor not as good as him and stuff. But, uh, so uh, Gary Pace said, I'm going to take you. Because it was all the way down in Garden City and Westland. I was like, no, no. He said, no, I'm going to take you. So Gary took me. And uh, I was kind of glad he took me. Because it was, he said it. I didn't believe it. But it was more emotional walking in. And I kind of sat in the park and I said, I'm going to go in. And he took me. And he said, this is why I came. I wanted to help you. I knew this would be hard. And I thought that was really cool. And then he said, you know, uh, if Roger Moore had uh, been alive, he goes, I know Roger really does. So I'm, I'm taking Roger's place. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that's what a family's supposed to be, right? If one of us is hurt, not feeling well, or going through a trial, or there's a really good group of you that came, and if you were in here, thank you for uh, Pastor Clarence and Peggy, his cousin who lived with them. She was 94, and she passed away, and everybody showed up at that funeral. It was a very nice little service. Thank you. That's what family does. I told my wife, I walked in there, and there's like eight, I don't know, 800 people or more. And uh, you know, I knew most of them and stuff. And uh, I told my wife, I said, I think I know what heaven's going to be like. Because I got to walk in, and there's people I haven't seen, some in 12, some in 15 years and stuff. And had person after person, it was really cool and stuff. Brother Steve, because that's what they call me. Brother Steve. Guy or girl, and oh, I haven't seen you. Oh, how are you feeling? Oh, this is great. And then after that one, I did the next one, and it just turned into this amazing kind of reunion of people I love, and a few people I don't like, but mostly people I love. I told Sandy, I said, that's got to be what heaven's going to be like. You get there, and you're going to, oh, Grandma, Uncle Bill, my dad, Jesus. It's just going to be one person after the next, and just such an amazing gathering. That will be the ultimate family gathering. Amen. But I met one of our, our, the girls that I, uh, when she was a teenager last time I saw her, now she's like 30 years old, she's a mom. She was a uh, real pretty girl and she ended up marrying a guy in our youth department. They dated and they got married and he's a cop now and she's uh, a chemist or something like that. And uh, They're doing real well and stuff. And she, uh, I, I was like, oh, well, I hugged her and she was like, dude, and we started talking. She said, dude, when I got saved. It was such a cool story. It's one of my favorite stories. And, uh, she was coming and hanging out in our youth department and hearing the gospel. And on a Sunday night after church, by the way, she'd come on Sunday night. This is when stuff like this happens. On a Sunday night after church, Ken, you probably have a million stories like this too. Sunday night after church, we all went to, for some reason, McDonald's. We never went there before, but we went there as a group and the kids were all driving. And I was walking by and she was in a Jeep with a couple other kids and a guy. And, this, and they go, Brother Steve, come here. And she's crying and everything. And I, my first instinct, the boy in the car, I mean, I, I loved him and stuff, but I was like, what did you do to her? <laughs> and, and stuff. And she's kind of crying, and, she, and, and he's like, tell him, tell him. And she's like with tears in her eyes, she's like, I want to know Jesus. And it was really cool. They're in a McDonald's parking lot in Westland, and, and I got half in the Jeep and half out, and I'm holding her hand, and I'm just doing verses off the top of my heart, my, my mind, not my heart, on top of my heart and stuff. Like we prayed and I held her hand. Another, another, somebody else put their hand in from the back seat and stuff. It was really weird looking. You walk by, what's going on there and stuff. But we did. And she accepted Christ as her personal Savior and it was wonderful. When is the last time you've walked away from church, you've walked in your personal life and your study? When is the last time you just simply said, I just want Jesus? Well, I want Jesus and I want a better 401k. No, I just want Jesus. I want Jesus and I want my daughter to graduate. No, I, I want Jesus and I want to get a promotion. I want Jesus and I want to pay off my house. I want Jesus. I want, I want Jesus and I, I'd like to find out I don't have cancer. I want Jesus. I want this. No, no. I just want Jesus. Amen. That'll change everything about today. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Band. Well, whoever's in a place, in a place, place in the game. <coughs> They're going to play a song, and we're going to have our communion. But before we do that, head, head bowed and eyes closed. Would you do me a favor? We're not going to have our normal invitation moment, but we're going to have an invitation right there at your chair. I'm going to ask you a very important question. Do you know Christ as your personal Savior? Has there actually been a time and a place, like my friend Noel, like I've done, like every so many people in this room has done, when you said, Jesus, I'm a sinner, 
I can't make heaven on my own. Would you forgive me? Would you save me? Doesn't have to be words like that, but that's the moment. So I, I, when I was baptized, I'm glad you baptized with that sin. When I was confirmed, I'm glad you took those classes. That's good education. But that's not salvation. I know about Jesus. Then it's fine. There's going to be a lot of people in hell who know about Jesus. The question is, just like we're about to take these elements and put them in, when did you receive what Jesus did on the cross? And if you're here today and you say, yeah, I did that, can I just ask you, if we were to summarize your life, if you made your life into a bumper sticker or one statement, would it be, I just want Jesus? Just Jesus. And that would solve a lot of problems in your marriage and your home. It would probably get you out of debt because you've been spending money on things you shouldn't be. It would probably help you forgive somebody. It would change so much about your life. You would be a more peaceful person. You might not have to do therapy as much. I just want Jesus. Why don't you right now talk to God if that's you? Something in your life needs to change. Secret sin. You need to, you need to get something right with a brother or sister in Christ. Why don't you do that right now? This is our invitation right here in your chair. Do you know Jesus? As a Christian? Do you just want Jesus? I'm going to pray that our deacons are going to take their spot. Gentlemen, if you'll come. Do you know Christ? Do you just want Jesus? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I wish, I don't even know if that's the right word, but I, I just wish I had the ability with my words to reveal how desperately wicked we are and wretched and how holy and pure you are. And it is a completely amazing grace that you would die for us. Father, let your Holy Spirit now, if there's somebody who's not saved, just start revealing to them that they are a sinner separated from you and that you love them, God. Just let to start doing that. And Lord, if there's someone in here who's been struggling, struggling in their faith, struggling in decision, Lord, bring clarity. Father, nobody struggles with their faith when you're the center of their life. Nobody struggles with economic or moral or, or right, what's the right decision when you are the Lord of their life, Father. You make things so clear when you're this way. Father, help us to drop the secret sin. Thank you for amazing grace today. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Right now, I should ask you to prepare yourself. Hopefully your heart is ready and you know Christ. I'm going to have the deacons and they're going to start to distribute our elements today.
great thing about preaching about the Lord's Supper before communion is we don't have to get too much of illustrations or examples. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 will say this. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Matt, I picked out your steak again. Would you pray for us, sir? I apologize for picking on you. We wouldn't have to pray for you. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, Lord. We ask you to bless the, the juice which represents the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary's cross. And as uh, Hebrews 7 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Jesus paid it all so that we could be reconciled to you, Heavenly Father. And Lord, we pray these things in your holy name.
do it. We're, we're going to do it. Uh, Sally says yes to uh, starting our addictions ministry. Uh, she's been over at a few churches and organizations, getting some information. Uh, she needs a male to help her in this. Sally, I don't have a ministry. You're thinking about something. Why don't you just say yes? Probably once a week meeting. Help people with addictions, try to help them overcome that, and just uh, give them Jesus as much as possible. So that's going to be taking place hopefully this summer, this fall. We'll get that started. So if that's something you sound like you'd like to be interested in, see me. Wave your hand. Go see that young lady back there, and uh, she'll give you some information. In the next uh, few months or so, hopefully we'll have a little uh, meeting and a presentation to talk about the possibility and maybe the cost of building a building out there in the Diamond area. We were here on Mother's Day. We had our Mother's Day service. That was wonderful, but a nightmare. Because we did one combined service, and we could not fit. And uh, so that's a problem and stuff. And so it would be a sort of a gym, multi-purpose type, very stripped down, simple thing, and adding on to it. We'll talk more about it. And then hopefully, maybe in the next month or so, uh, we're going to present to you some ideas. We'll have a little meeting, an informational meeting, what we're thinking about about starting our church planting and being involved in church plants. Uh, Pastor Ken and I have, a, have had great times talking about what we think we could do and kick some ideas around. We'll probably meet with the deacons here and just say, this is what we're thinking and see how the response is and maybe they'll tell us. I mean, because we're like, we'd like to do 10 a year, but uh, that's probably uh, probably a bad idea maybe. Uh, so they'll kind of keep us, maybe one of them has a better idea of what we could try and stuff. And so it is our goal that every year, bare minimum one, we're involved in some level of planting a church. Bare minimum. That could mean sending a small amount of money. It always means prayer. It could mean us going to do a vacation Bible school for that church or passing out tracks, knocking on doors. Uh, it could mean a large amount of support on that also. So I might be coming to you asking you to give towards church planting and stuff. So uh, just keep that in prayer. When we have that, we'll have a big informational meeting. We'll let you know. So, uh, Adam, I know you're having a tough day. No, we're going we're gonna to do it. No, we're going to do something different. But we're going to. Uh, Adam got notification that a, a family, an eighth grader in his school that he teaches at passed away this morning. Uh, so please, what was that man's first, just his first name? Evan. So um, pray for Evan. You don't need to know all the details. We don't need to know why. But please remember his family. Because uh, they're they're going through a very difficult day, and so please remember Evan's family and Alma with that. What I'd like to do is do something different. We have this new technology. Some of you have never seen this before. It's called a book. Actually, it's amazing. But these things that are in the chair in front of you, these green ones, they're called hymnals. Okay. So a long time before they started putting words on the screen, people used to actually read the songs out of this. And we don't do a lot of this at this service. In fact, I don't think we ever do this. Danny was playing that beautiful album. I love that. That is an amazing song. So what I'd like to do in closing out our song, our service, uh, would you grab the hymnal in front of you? Number 10, if you need it. If you were raised in a good Baptist church, you don't. We're just going to sing one stanza, okay, Danny? Anybody raised the fiscal family need this? I don't need this. Well, number 10, write them their stanza. And let's do this. They, they tell me young people won't sing hymns. That's ridiculous. Stand with me. This is just one of the best songs in Christianity, and I just absolutely love it. Oh, oh Lord, my God. Danny, lead us. Page 10. Oh, Lord, my God. 
So he asks that you would hold hands. Just reach across, hold hands. I like it back there. They got their arms on their shoulders. Way to go. And let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we're blown away by what you do for us every day. We're humbled as we leave here and realize the uh, awesome sacrifice you made for each one of us. We ask you to continue to work and develop our lives in a way that would uh, honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. Have a great afternoon.